You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here, as always. And if this is the first time that you've ever tuned in, welcome. I'm so glad that you found the show, and I'm excited to share this week's guest with you. I'm speaking with author and filmmaker Sasha Sagan about her new book, For Small Creatures Such As We, which was inspired by her viral essay for The Cut, Lessons of Immortality and Mortality from my father, Carl Sagan. Yes, Sasha is the daughter of late astronomer and author Carl Sagan and the writer and producer Andrew Yan. Now, this is an episode where we dive deep into the greater themes of motherhood and ritual and science and religion. And what I love about Sasha's work and that of her parents is that these topics don't have to be siloed. They don't have to be these isolated things. Um, There is a connection between all things. And so to view that and to share that and to think about that, I think is really interesting. Now, Sasha has worked as a TV producer, filmmaker. She actually co-wrote and produced a film with best friend Kirsten Dunst, which was screened at Tribeca and closed con in 2010. She's an editor, writer, and speaker. And her essays and interviews on death, history, and ritual through a secular lens have appeared in New York Magazine, O Magazine, Lit Hub, Mashable, The Violet Book, and elsewhere. And she regularly speaks on ways science can inform our celebrations, and how we mark the passage of time. So I know we're going deep, but that's kind of what we do on this show. And if you're tuning in, I know you appreciate and love that too. Um, If you do enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you leave a review, you will have a chance to win a copy of Sasha's book. Enjoy this episode with Sasha Sagan. Well, hello, Sasha. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Absolutely. And we're here to talk about your new book for small creatures such as we. And as I mentioned before we got going, I really, really enjoyed the book. And, you know, it's a tribute to your great father, Carl Sagan, the great astronomer and educator. And you take on some pretty heavy themes in this book. Why was it that that you felt drawn to the paradox of smallness and vastness and mortality and immortality? How did you come to that to write a book? Oh, you know, it's funny. My husband, my friends always joke about how I just like inappropriately love to just jump into the deep end (laughs) in every conversation. But I just think, I don't know, to me, um, those questions, our place in the universe, um, reckoning with our own mortality, um, you know, the deep philosophical questions about existence. There's just nothing that is more interesting or more important to talk about um, and to wrestle with and to explore. And I try to do it in a sort of lighthearted manner with humor and joy. And I think that there are so many topics that in a society where we are almost by the day becoming more comfortable talking about so many things that were forbidden, um, sex and religion and politics um, and race and all these things that we've ignored um, dealing with head on for so many years, um, I think death is still kind of a taboo subject in our mortality and and our deepest, deepest beliefs. Um, And so I've always been drawn to that. My parents never shied away from those topics. And I think that, um, you know, when you become a parent, which I did during the course of writing this book, spent a lot of time thinking about um, becoming a mom. I now, my daughter's now four. Um, so we're really in the like, why, 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 <laughs> um, which I love. And I really like, was like, I was like, this is the stage of motherhood that I was born for. Like, I really, you know, 
children don't know the the social mores against what not to ask. And I really came from a place of of thinking about the way my parents mm-hmm. addressed these deep questions and how I planned and am now executing um, the the managing and 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 the um, discussions around around these profound and 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 haunting questions. Yeah. I mean, were you grateful? I always feel like when we become parents, we appreciate our parents so much more because we finally get it. Are you grateful for how your parents raised you? How they, they didn't say, because I said so, or, you know, just be quiet. Like they really took time and and you can see that that's, that's what you're doing as well. Thank you. Yes, I I do. I mean, so much of the book is a love letter to my parents. And I think that because they both um, felt so, I think sometimes when parents or adults say or discourage questioning or say, because I said so, or try to, you know, change the subject, it's because they're uncomfortable with their own lack of knowledge sometimes, their own doubt sometimes. And I think that my parents in their own lives and careers were really comfortable with, I mean, that's what so much of science is, is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, asking a question to which we do not know the answer and looking for evidence rather than, and of course, scientists are human beings, but instead of, you know, this urge to force an answer in because we're so uncomfortable tolerating ambiguity, letting there be a deep question and waiting for there to be evidence and being comfortable saying, this is a mystery that we don't have an answer to in the meantime. And I think that that philosophy, um, really permeated their parenting also. And I think that, you know, I do feel so much gratitude for that approach. And and I can see, um, you know, the other side of it, of course, now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, talk to me at 5.30 tonight. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it's true. It's like, you know, the legacy of our parents does live on in us. And I think that that was such a strong theme in the book as well. You know, if you don't believe in the afterlife, you don't believe in those things necessarily, that doesn't mean that your ancestors aren't still a part of you and aren't still influencing things, even on a cellular level. Can you expand on that? Because I think for a lot of us, for so many of us, this book is a balm after the past two years. And you don't have to be religious to appreciate what you're trying to get across. Can you talk about legacy through our ancestors and how that can carry on and how you can still find beauty in that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the echoes of history um, are part of everything that we do. And, you know, we just, we hear those echoes really loudly sometimes, and sometimes they're really subtle, but I think that, you know, for those of us who are secular, one of the things that is the most mythic, the most magical thing I can think of, if it were only presented um, in this context, is this idea that um, there is a secret code in your blood that connects you to your ancestors and to the earliest humans and to all life on earth. And it can solve mysteries for people who were adopted or don't know beyond a few generations back where they came from or, you know, all sorts for all sorts of reasons, you know, there's some deep question, there is an answer. And this is a new scientific idea that's only been with us, you know, a matter of decades, the Mm -hmm. idea that we can figure out um, where we came from and who our ancestors were, even when we've lost the threads of 
time and place and names and dates. And I think that there's something about that that is more powerful and more like a fairy tale, more like a great myth, more like a um, holy, sacred story um, than anything we've invented for ourselves. And so I think about that a lot. I see it in my in my daughter, my husband and I marvel all the time um, about the little expressions she makes that remind us of my grandfather who mm-hmm. passed away before she was born. And like those connections, I think are so powerful. And I think that for those of us who are secular and want to honor our ancestors, you know, sometimes we feel bound um, this weight of obligation of the generations on us to say, well, I don't want to be the first person in 6,000 years not to do X, or I don't want to be, you know, that my grandmother took such care to do this and her grandmother taught her. And like, I don't want to do it differently because you feel this obligation. I think that there are still ways to honor our ancestors without feeling that um, their, every one of their rituals and traditions is, um, we have an onus to keep them going. You know, all these traditions and rituals, everything really in culture, it has to mutate in order to survive. And the thing that I think about most that's really reassuring is everything we consider traditional is new on the scale. Of <laughs> you know, we, this is all, these are all things that when we look at the time horizon of our species, it's all <laughs> just brand new. Right. And I think there's a way to just carve out the parts that are meaningful to us without feeling so beholden that we're in a position to go through the motions about things that we don't really connect to. Yeah. Why do you think humans are so drawn to ritual, to tradition, to process change and and time? Because like you say in the book, time goes so fast and it's like we don't even realize it until we get back together with our friends who have kids that are the same age and we're like, whoa, like these kids are really growing. I mean, every parent understands this and is probably nodding her head. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's, and I think at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all inside and every day was the same and no one was going anywhere. And like, we're just in our pajamas, <laughs> just like, I, I think it really crystallized this idea of when there's no break from the monotony, how time becomes impossible to understand and experience. Yeah. And I think that human beings are drawn to, to traditions and rituals, um, for a few reasons, I think, um, to, to break up the monotony, you know, is, is really important to process time passing, I think is crucial, central element of it. You know, we have all these cyclical and once in a lifetime events. And when we think about, just as you said, like when you haven't seen a friend's kid in a couple of years and you're like, that was a little kid. Now this is like mm-hmm. a queen. Like, how did this happen? You know, the coming of age rituals in communities and cultures around the world throughout time, that's a tool to help us think, oh my goodness, it was, this kid was just born and now he has a mustache. Like what's <laughs> happening, you know? Um, and I think that like, that is really hard for us to process time changing. And I think the other reason we're so drawn and we've created so many magnificent, some not great, but many gorgeous, magnificent um, rituals and traditions throughout the world and throughout time is um, because it allows us a little bit of an illusion of control in a universe Mm -hmm. that we cannot control. We cannot predict the future. It tortures us, right? It's so inconvenient (laughs) not knowing what's going to happen next. And the idea that there's, there's just 
we have so little control in this chaos. And I think that when we think, okay, well, I'm going to do this, this at this time of year, every year, and I know that I can assert a little bit of control or every morning I'm going to do this or every time someone dies, I can't control that I'm going to lose the people I love over the course of my life and that I'm going to die. But when that happens, if we do this X, Y, and Z, we have this little infrastructure for our grief, then we can assert a little bit of control. Um, in a world where there's so little. And I think that it's a combination of those emotional needs, which are deep and valid, um, that we've created so many rituals. Um, and I think that sometimes we weigh the really ancient things as being so much more valuable than the new things or the things that have morphed recently. But I think that um, the real value is if it helps solve some of this deep turmoil that we mm-hmm. all experience in life. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things. It's just so inescapable, you know, life, death, near death experiences. Why do you think it's those times in our lives that really wake us up to the beauty of life, the importance, the miracle of life? Like, like you say, it's a miracle that we're even here that our parents met, that our grandparents met. I mean, why do you think it's those scary moments really, or, you know, even birth is scary that wake us up. Yeah, So true. Birth is scary. And I think that, you know, We have so many, when we're going, you know, we evolved from creatures um, and we're very recently, you know, in in the scale of, of human history, creatures who, you know, survival through the day was not guaranteed through the winter, you know, people starved. I mean, we were not always at the top of the food chain, you know, the fear is part of our survival. And I think that we're, Many of us are very lucky to be removed from that on a daily basis. And we're not fearing, hopefully not fearing for our lives in a regular, you know, at a regular interval. But there are those moments that, um, you know, like having a close call car accident or something like that, where you just click into this part of yourself that realizes that, you know, tomorrow is not promised. And Mm -hmm. I think that, for those of us who don't think that there is a um, grand plan or that everything happens for a reason, I think it can be even more of a visceral thing because it's, you know, people die. You know, this is a real thing that we sometimes put out of our heads mm-hmm. because it's so painful and it's so hard to deal with. And it's and we think that by putting it at arm's length and ignoring it, we're going to not have to deal with it. But of course, like, you know, everything that we try to ignore rather than face, um, it doesn't work that way. And so I think those moments where we can ignore it, um, open something up inside of us where we realize how valuable it is to be here right now. Um, and, and, you know, how much we love our families, our loved ones, how much we appreciate this moment. And I think that, um, you know, that's a really important um, perspective to have, even even though it sometimes comes out of the worst kinds of experiences. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like the Taoists say, you know, remember that you're going to die every morning, like have that thought at the forefront so that you can then go out and live truly well and live a beautiful life. Like that's central, you know, to a good life is that death. Absolutely. I mean, in Latin, memento mori, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a really important thing to, to do. And I, I, you know, of course it's painful and it's scary to think, right, this is not forever. But I think that really facing that is um, the road, the pathway to every day until that day comes, um, having more joy and appreciation. Yeah. So how do you go into your day then, you know, with these big themes in your mind and you're also trying to raise a daughter and, you know, do all the things. How do you, how do you remember to stay centered, to be, to be present and to appreciate, you know, the trees, the weather, everything? Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, right. It's so you got into the rhythm of like, okay, we just have to get breakfast ready. And like the Halloween costume is like needs this and like, oh, the form for this and work and all these things. And, and it's really easy to lose the forest for the trees. I mean, it's so it's, that's inevitable sometimes, but I think that actually spending time with a small child is also the antidote because Mm. There is so much wonder and awe when everything's new. Like it's really easy to get blase about existence as we get older. Um, but like my daughter, like every time she sees the moon, she like bugs out. Like it mm. is like a huge, huge event. And like we make a really big deal about it. And we talk about like who's like the moon spotter in the family and who's gonna see the moon. <laughs> and like it's and like, is it waning? Is it waxing? Where is it in its um cycle? And like, you know, what's it gonna be tomorrow? And like to really dive into the things that your children show interest in, in the natural world um, and really like, just be like, yes, this is going to be our thing. And we are going to learn so much about this. And we're going to have a thing up on the refrigerator that shows the cycles of the moon for the year. And, you know, for whatever it is, and it could be anything, I think that that actually is both, I think it's good for the kid, but I think it's good for the parents too, because it's way of saying this is astonishing there is this satellite that orbits us that changes and to go into the part of ourselves where we think imagine you know we do that little mental time travel and I think we do it for kids sometimes too where we say imagine there was no electricity people used to live outside and imagine how important the moon was imagine how different it was when it was huge full moon versus a tiny crescent on a cloudy night and like go into that part of ourselves where we imagine a totally different existence that we once had I think there's so much there that can connect us to um this beauty and this realization. And also like when we think about different points in history and we think about what things were like, it highlights that we're a link in a chain, you know, and we're somebody's ancient past, hopefully if the species keeps going and we're also someone else's distant future. And I think that perspective is really important for ourselves. And I think it's really valuable to impart even on small children. Oh, I think especially because, you know, you look at the anxiety rates among kids now and, you know, how connected, but also how divisive everything is. And it's like, we forget to connect to the natural world. And, you know, as a mother, I feel we're especially attuned to that, at least more so than dear old dad. Um, But it's like, 
yeah, if you can pass that on to your child, not only are you down-regulating their stress response, but you're giving them something else, like a wider worldview just outside the door that they can tune into and understand better. Yeah. And then our own experiences that are unpleasant or something, you know, doesn't go how you want it, or there's some conflict or something like that. It, it does feel relatively smaller when we have that perspective. And I, you know, still validate those feelings and still understand that like, you know, whatever happened at school is a bummer or whatever it is, yeah. but just the scale um, changes. Yeah. I mean, that's useful for me. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> yeah, totally. We all do. Uh, where did, when did you think that this, this sense of, of greater curiosity and wonder, when did that really start for you? You know, cause it's not, I, I mean, I get that it's children are, are more naturally this way, but to really start digging in, to really exploring, to start writing about it and even writing screenplays about it. Like when did it really root for you? I think that there's something I think you're right. It's innate in children. And I think a lot of times it gets sort of discouraged yeah. and instead of fed. And I think that, you know, I write about in the book, one of the best things um, like I could do as a kid is if I asked my parents a question to which they didn't know the answer, they would be like really excited. And the idea of almost as a holy ritual going to look it up. I mean, in those mm. days it was in the physical paper encyclopedia <laughs> um, yes. now the supercomputers that we all carry around in our pockets um but you know that idea that that um there, there is information to be found and that it's a joyful thing to go looking for it and that you know we don't have all the answers but there's more answers out in the world than in our heads and looking for them is um fun and is important and is something really valuable. I think that coupled with the ideas that like, um, another thing that I touch on in the book is like we had school, we have this like artificial division between mm -hmm. subjects, right? The bell rings, you have English class with this professor or this teacher, the bell rings, you go to math class, it's a different room, it's a different person, it's a different you know, everything. And we have this idea that they're not connected and history and science and art. And we have this idea that these are separate things that are segregated. And I think that that is um, a problem because yeah. they're so interconnected. And, you know, we think, oh, I like this. Or I don't like that. I'm not a math person or mm -hmm. I'm not a literature person. And I don't think that serves us. And I, I think that finding, drawing the connections between subjects and between um, areas of expertise and interest and reading about things that we normally, you know, are not our favorite genre or not our favorite topic, but seeing how they connect to the things that we have spent our life learning about is really powerful. And I think that the more, the more connections we draw and the more we think, oh, this period in history oh, well, this was what was happening politically. This is the art that was coming out of that time. This is the literature that was being written. This is a scientific revelation that had completely upturned everyone's perspective on things. And seeing how those things are connected, I think just makes us more curious and more interested. And I think it also allows us when we're teaching children history or teaching them um, about anything really, it's there are more roads to get their interest um, yeah. than if we just think, oh God, algebra, you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so true because it does give a greater perspective on something that you would never normally, you know, find interesting. And then through that other path, then you suddenly start to understand the math or the art or, you know, why this poet wrote this way, you know, at this time period. I so agree with that. And I think that our educational system is so outdated in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad in a lot of ways, but you know, even having conversations like this, like it gives the mother, the the father listening to this, you know, the impetus to, well, hey, maybe I can, you know, bring in something on the side and we can talk about yeah. this because, you know, I can, I can do it too. I don't have to be a teacher to not be a teacher. I think seeing your parents or the adults around you having really animated, excited, yeah. philosophical, intellectual conversations. I just read this. What do you think about this? Okay. I know you disagree with this statement, but I read someone describe this, this way. What do you think? And, and like watching your parents, I mean, my parents work together and, um, you know, that of course bled over and it's not like, Oh, five o'clock, not right. what we spent all day writing about when we sit down to dinner or whatever. And, you know, it, my husband and I don't work together. We're totally different areas of expertise and interest, but to say this happened, this is the history of this. This was in the news today. Um, this reminds me of this book, you know, and, and to model that, um, I mean, it's really fun. It's my preferred (laughs) way of doing things, but also I think it's, um, modeling that for, um, a small child that this is like what, you know, there's a endless, amount of things to explore and talk about. And when you have a partner or a friend or, you know, your family, like this is sort of, um, an area of a little dance you can do together. That's so joyful. Yeah. I mean, it seems like your parents really did model that curiosity and almost childlike wonder for the world. What was a dinner like, you know, a typical night when you were sitting down and they'd worked all day? Like what, what topics would come up? Was it always about science and astronomy or was it, was it about anything? It was so, I think it was much more often about history Hmm. and, um, you know, I, I think it was much more often about history, often the history of science. And like, that's really my, mm. my mom's not a scientist and that's really her area of expertise is the history of science. But it was, you know, so often, you know, I'm, I can picture my dad turning to me and saying, well, what do you think about mm. this? And, you know, having that sort of, even as, even when I was really like a elementary school age, like asking me about like the social dynamics at like in like third grade. And I, I think he was sort of seeing it from this like anthropological um, <laughs> perspective, you know, like probably had spent all day reading about like, you know, non-human primates, like <laughs> hierarchies or whatever. And it's like, what's happening in third grade, but like, just, you know, asking questions and saying, well, I learned this today, or I read this today. And, you know, we had the news on a lot. My parents wanted me to know what was going on in the world. Also, I think being aware at the appropriate age that not everyone in the world is so lucky as we are. And, and really understanding like, you know, that uh, somewhere else on the planet, there are other kids your age who are in really difficult situation, whether it's there's war or famine or something like having that perspective and the idea that we are not intrinsically different than that family, you know, this is just, we, where we live far away. And so, you know, we put up these walls to say, Oh, that's not happening to me, but they're, they're us. We are them. 
And I think that, you know, drawing all those connections, definitely there was like scientific and astronomical discussions, but it was really, I mean, my parents also like love literature and art Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, history. And I think drawing the connections between those things were really um, the source of what was so exciting to me. And I think led me on the path um, that, you know, I'm, I'm on now with my work. God, what an education at the dinner table. I love it. That's amazing. So, you know, when you were writing this book, did you know who you were writing it for, what the message was that you wanted to get across, or did it kind of evolve as you, as you wrote each chapter? Well, I, the first, the real, like first, like grain of it was an essay I wrote in the cut in like 2014. That was very much about mortality. And for those of us who are not religious, how we deal with loss. And, you know, that was sort of the kernel that it started with. But as I was researching and starting to outline what this book was going to be, you know, I'm like, I love celebrations. I'm like, I'm like, I love, you know, all these other elements of life that we also have to figure out how to do weddings and holidays. The infrastructure is often historically religious. And so how do we navigate all that without, you know, for those of us who believe science is the pathway to understanding. And so when I was writing it, I had two groups of people in mind, like who I like was really actively thinking about when I was writing. One was um, parents of small children, especially, you know, people who are at that point where you think, right, because it's easy to not think about this stuff basically until you have to plan a wedding, a funeral or raise a child. And then you're going to have to make some decisions <laughs> about what you believe and what the, yeah. what the message is that you're conveying, you know? And so I was thinking a lot about that and about families where maybe, you know, each parent has a different background as my husband and I do, um, or just, you know, are sort of in this ether of like, well, we're not religious, but we don't want to do nothing, you know? And so that was like one of the, you know, people I was imagining writing to while I was writing the book. And the other person, maybe an overlapping person, um, is, uh, people who identify as, um, spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's for that, that perspective, which I connect to in a lot of ways, often gets sort of like um, attracted to other, not religious, but other not evidence-based mm-hmm. philosophy. And, you know, there's a lot of woo-woo <laughs> out, <laughs> exactly, out there. And I think for people who have turned away from religion or weren't raised with religion, don't connect to it but still want to feel this deep connection to the earth and the universe and one another, I think it's really um, easy to get sort of like mixed up in some yeah. stuff that's not really. Especially with psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's just like, a, I'm just going to say like a lot of astrology and crystal <laughs> stuff out there, which like, I just, it's not, it's not, to me, it's not the path to this deep connection and understanding. And what I wanted to put forth is this idea that even for non-scientists, for lay people, I'm not a scientist, um, 
there is a way of understanding our place in the universe and our connection to one another and our connection to the planet and the stars that is totally evidence-based and totally real and demonstrably provable that doesn't require any more or less, you know, um, you can have this, this with skepticism and, and without, um, without faith. And I think that there's a way that, um, you know, sometimes that message gets lost in scientific communication. Um, and so those were the two, the two groups of people I was really, um, imagining while I was at my laptop. But see, the beautiful thing is like, the work of your father and your work and even the work of your mother, like you bring in the artistry that so many in the scientific community are lacking. So you're able to give life to these real scientific, you know, the scientific method, the the data, the facts in a way that's more palatable to the people who are so hungry for this connection and this greater understanding. It's like the missing link. We talked about links before that has been so needed. And I think that is something that your father did just incredibly well and your mother you know she was right there with him supporting that absolutely yeah no their collaboration was really about that very Mm -hmm. thing this idea that science shouldn't just be for the high priesthood you know that it has to be for everyone to understand and to connect with and that the idea that like wonder and awe and the like like you know you're like chill running down your spine feeling um that that's not just it's not just that you you can have that with science, but science should evoke that. And it can be the source of the most astonishing, most beautiful, awe-inspiring um, ideas. And, and over the course of human history, it has been, but it's just those ideas don't always get presented yeah. clearly and with that joyful enthusiasm um, the way that they could be and I think should be. Yeah, with no agenda on the religious side, on the scientific side, like no agenda. This is what it is. And this is why I think it's so beautiful. Oh, okay, so we are at the end almost um, with everything that you have studied and learned and just intuitively know. What do you want the listener to remember from this talk? I think um, the idea that tolerating ambiguity is a good thing and that we don't know all the answers. And sometimes we're so uncomfortable with that idea, but that um, waiting for information, for evidence um, is better than than making things up because we can't stand the Mm. open space. Um, And I think that, you know, the real, the reality of nature as revealed by science um, is the source of so much beauty and wonder in the world and children crave that. And I think adults do too. And um, every day can, can be full of that awe um, with, with the right, the right approach. I love that. I love that. Okay. So Sasha, where can everyone get your book and find out more about you online? Um, it's for small creatures such as we, you can get it anywhere. I mean, support your local bookstores, but it is available anywhere. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Sasha Sagan. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sasha. I love this conversation. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work and the wonder that you give to the world. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking with you. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast.